we need people talking about the fact that there has been research that revealed that the human brain is not fully grown, developed until about the age of 26. And therefore, that being the case, I think we need to rearrange quite a few things in our society, including the age at which people are permitted to have and use guns. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to be rid of this type of incident because of the condition of the children. As long as you have children that are going to ridicule, torture, and terrorize other children, I think it's going to push some of these kids to do these type of things. What about bullying? I know that a lot of uh, these uh, shooters are triggered by bullying. And uh, I know here I work uh, Tuskegee University and the, the Tim's Middle School there in Tuskegee has posters, pictures on the wall that are that say zero tolerance for bullying. Um, how are these? How are schools addressing bullying issues? Congress is looking to pass a bipartisan gun safety proposal, and it could come with a hefty investment in mental health. The deal is expected to include funding for a nationwide expansion of community mental health clinics and mental health services in schools. But will putting money towards mental health have a real effect on gun violence? One in five U.S. adults live with mental illness. That's according to the National Institute of Mental Health. But most of them are not violent. Those with severe mental illness are actually 10 times more likely to be victims of violent crime than the general population. That's according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So how can more funding for mental health curb gun violence and where does it fall short? We'll get into it after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Struggling with work or any of life's roles can lead to a lack of motivation and detachment. Prioritize your mental health by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist, and it's more affordable than in-person therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. We're discussing gun violence and mental health. Joining us to discuss is Jeff Temple. He's a licensed psychologist and the founding director of the Center for Violence Prevention at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Professor Temple, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. I'm excited to be on 1A. Also with us is Dr. Stephen Pliska. He's a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist at the University of Texas San Antonio. He's also a chair at the Texas Child Mental Health Care Consortium. Dr. Pliska, welcome to the program. It's good to be here. Thank you. And also with us is Julie Rovner. She's Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of the podcast, What the Health. Julie, it's great to have you back. Always happy to be here. So this is just a proposal at this point. But Julie, how might the mental health funding included in this framework be used? Well, the idea is to expand access to mental health services, which is a problem that goes way beyond gun violence. And it was a problem well before the pandemic, although, again, a problem that's been made worse by the pandemic. And, you know, I think there there was some resistance uh, among a lot of Republicans to doing anything big on guns, but they thought maybe one thing they could agree on 
was boosting some funding for very much needed mental health services. And I think that's why that's in this bill to the extent it is. Uh, Professor Temple, tell us what the research says about the connection between mental illness and violent behavior. Sure. So I actually did a study a couple of years ago where we found that uh, we looked at mental health symptoms and whether or not that was related to carrying a gun or threat, being threatened with a gun or threatening someone with a gun. And what we found that really when you, when you controlled for everything, that these mental health symptoms were not associated with gun violence. Instead, and probably not surprisingly, it was access to guns that was the driving factor. And, and that seems to be the case in, in whenever we look at research into this topic, that it is always this access to guns and, and not mental health. And in fact, it's, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but people with mental illness are substantially more likely to be victims of gun violence than perpetrators. Well, let's hear from Democratic Senator Chris Murphy speaking about the proposal at a press conference last weekend. He's one of the lead negotiators of the deal. We don't think you can solve America's gun violence epidemic through the prism of mental health. Um, But if we have agreement between Democrats and Republicans to spend billions of additional dollars on mental health treatment, especially for vulnerable communities, let's take that opportunity. Julie, why does a plan meant to reduce gun violence include a focus on mental health? What are the politics behind this? Well, obviously, you know, they want to get something done on guns. They were, as we've seen, they were unable to negotiate very much. The Republicans didn't want to give very much. Um, But the Republicans were willing to do some mental health changes. And there's a lot of mental health bills right now in Congress. But this is obviously on a fast track. So I think uh, the Democrats and some of the Republicans who were negotiating this were perfectly happy to to go ahead and, you know, put some of the, the mental health initiatives that were kicking around in other bills into this one so that they can make this package look a little beefier, if you will. And when you look at the breakdown of the proposal, Julie, how much focus is on mental health? Well, more focus is on mental health only because there's not very much focus, as it turns out, on guns. They were really unable to come to a deal on, you know, even some of the things that have passed the House, like raising the age uh, for being able to buy assault weapons from 18 to 21. So they're, they're fairly minimum minimal gun uh, changes here, gun uh, regulation changes. And so I think the, the mental health provisions kind of make up for the, the lack of actual gun control in this gun control package. Dr. Pliska, you work for the Texas Child Mental Health Care Consortium. This is a community-based mental health services program. Your program is, is the type that could see funding from this plan if it, if it goes through. Tell us more about the consortium and the work you're doing there. Well, the, the Child Texas Mental Health Consortium was funded by the legislature about two years ago and really was money was put into four programs. One was a program for consultation to pediatricians who had children, their patients who had mental health issues that they were seeing in their offices. Another was a school psychiatry, a school mental health program called TCHAT, which is really telemental health to school. So kids could be seen in the school or in their home via telehealth. The third was to place child psychiatry trainees in community mental health centers. And then the fourth was to simply expand the number of slots for child psychiatry residents to increase the total number of child psychiatrists that were available in the, uh, in the state. And as I say, they, they, they're just, these programs just now are kind of coming uh, to the full, to, to reach the full extent of the funding that they were given. And yes, 
the types of things that are being talked about could further fund uh, these types of services. Now, Uvalde, Texas, was on the consortium's list of target areas, but hadn't yet received its service before a shooter opened fire at Robb Elementary School. What challenges are you bumping up against in reaching those your program aims to serve? I think the uh, in fact we do we're, we hope to meet with the Uvalde School District in the, in we have a meeting set up within the next couple of weeks to kind of explore expanding to them. Uh, our mission for this year, in fact, is now to reach out to all of these rural school districts where uh, mental health services can be in particular uh, short supply. I think the biggest challenge that we're having right now, we, funding was always a challenge. And I think that we have seen a change in attitude even before these school shootings about the need to invest further in, in mental health services. I think the challenge now is becoming that there's a, a, a shortage of mental health professionals of every stripe, uh, not only child psychiatrists, but psychologists, uh, master's level therapists, the kinds of people who, who will be on the front line. And there is a particular shortage of people who will work in the public sector. Mm. So people, when they graduate from mental health training, tend to go into private practice. They tend to move into the urban areas, the suburban areas. They see people who can primarily pay cash or have good insurance. So community mental health centers or programs like ours, you know, kind of have to compete, you know, with that environment. So, uh, you know, it, I welcome the funding. I, what I foresee the problem is, the, is you know, uh, competing for that small group of people. I think there's a big need for things like loan repayment programs, you know, things that will encourage people to go into the public sector. We also got this email from Leslie who says, I'm a licensed counselor in North Carolina. Mental health resources are badly needed and addressing poverty dramatically improves mental health and reduces violence and crime. Ending poverty will reduce this violence substantially. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about Leslie's email? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we do a disservice when we talk about these sort of individual approaches without addressing the bigger structural and systematic changes that need to happen. So, you know, we know through uh, decades of research that giving people affordable places to live, safe places to live, giving them livable wages, uh, that is going to reduce violence. I mean, child care is violence prevention. Basically, if someone is, and we saw this with the pandemic, with low income, uh, pe- people low income, they're going to have increased stress, they're going to have increased demands. Uh, if they're working a couple of jobs, having to pay for child care, having to do all this, it's increased stress all, all the way around, which we know is a risk factor for violence, including gun violence. So if we can give people uh, a, a livable wage, give them access to affordable child care, we're going to absolutely see reductions in violence. So briefly, when you look at a plan like what's currently being discussed in Congress, if I'm connecting the dots correctly, it, it sounds like there's a huge swath of other resources that are being overlooked while there's this focus on mental health care. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's, we see this after every mass shooting. And, and I want to walk this tightrope because, again, we are in a mental health crisis and we need these resources. 
but we see mental health as the boogeyman after every single time. And, and while getting these resources are welcomed, it's not without cost. You know, it's going to increase the stigmatization of mental illness. It's going to deprive people with mental illness of their Second Amendment rights uh, when there is little to no evidence that mental illness is a contributor to mass violence. It's just there is not one single psychiatric disorder that explains mass shootings. Let's go to this message we got from Gabriel in Chicago. I'm a public school teacher in a community that's definitely affected by gun violence. And the first thing I would say is that the way that we can make our schools more secure is by fully stopping them and not funding our schools in accordance to the property values of that specific neighborhood or city. I think that we need to make sure that there's vast federal funding to uh, make sure that we have the socio-emotional services that kids need in the building and just to make sure that we have the adults present. Gabriel, thanks for that message. Uh, Professor Temple, much of the focus of this bipartisan proposal is on school shootings, specifically school mass shootings. But those account for a small fraction of U.S. gun violence. So how might this proposal address neighborhood and community gun violence? Yeah, and, and I do really appreciate the emphasis on uh, community approaches because when you when you really look at mass shootings as tragic as terrible as they are, it's a it's a minuscule amount of everyday gun violence that we see uh, in with gang violence and then uh, probably most prevalently with domestic violence and family violence is where we see most of the mass shootings. So I think it's upwards of sixty percent of mass shootings involved uh, domestic violence in some respect. So if we could get more of these dollars, more of these resources, more folks out there uh, addressing partner violence, having resources for women to go, to call, to text, to chat, then we're going to see reductions in gun violence. Now, Gabriel also mentioned social emotional services, which is something you've also researched. First, what is it? What does it involve and how could it combat gun violence? Yeah, and I'm so glad Gabriel mentioned that. So, uh, and fully staffing schools. So we actually know how to prevent violence. We we know you know what predicts violence. We we have a pretty good understanding of how to do it, and it's going to involve a consistent and robust presence of socio-emotional learning programs and healthy relationship programs from kindergarten all the way through college, uh, post high school. And what that is, is uh, teaching kids how to be uh, present, how to be mindful, how to regulate their emotions and, uh, and really sort of inoculates them against stress that is going to happen in their lives. So if we can prepare them for uh, these these stressors, whether it's a loss of a loved one or being bullied or uh, just the, you know, living in poverty or the overall uh, horribleness of our news right now, uh, you know, that would go a long way to preventing violence. But that's going to take generational investments, right? So it's not going to be one assembly or one week or a guest speaker. It's going to take consistent and robust generational investments that, uh, like we did with COVID or cancer or HIV, where we're going to have to be, you know, it's not going to be just an assembly. It has to be basically every year from kindergarten through high school of teaching kids how to be in a relationship. And yet, uh, Professor Temple, we've seen this pushback against social emotional learning in, in schools. So why do you think there's such a disconnect around what that actually is? 
You know, it's really frustrating, and uh, I know that that's not a great uh, solution in my answer, but it, but it is. The, on one hand, people are talking about how we need to do something to prevent school violence, and on the other hand, they're arguing against things like CRT or teaching our history or socio-emotional learning is now a, a bad word, and, you know, that should be taught at home. And, and uh, you know, I, I think it's going to have to be a public campaign on our part to do a better job of linking healthy relationships and socio-emotional learning to academic performance. Because if a kid is stressed, if a kid is overwhelmed, they're not going to do well in school. And if they don't do well in school, well, then they're not going to have a good career. So uh, even for the, for the folks that don't have a heart, I mean, it is fiscally responsible to have socio-emotional learning in schools because it's going to make better, happier, healthier kids, which is going to make them easy. They're going to be better learners and they're going to be better taxpayers. Dr. Pliska, more than half of gun deaths in 2020 were suicides. What impact could the mental health measures in this proposal have on this piece of the gun violence problem? I think um, we'd be naive if we say, well, if we fund this money, the suicide rate will go down because as many of the callers and have pointed out, you know, there are multifaceted aspects to these that all have to be addressed. Uh, but I think that uh, the funding, if it's applied uh, appropriately and continues to grow at the levels we need, uh, you can kind of begin to kind of uh, deal with this through, through early uh, identification. I think people who are in treatment, you know, have a significantly lower suicide rate than those people who uh, are never, never treated. So uh, in, in, for instance, in our T-Chat program, we see a lot of kids that talk about suicide, threaten suicide, uh, but by getting them more rapidly into therapy, uh, we can help them to address those issues and uh, we, we reduce the rate, the, the risk in, in, in that particular individual. Uh, the range of treatments that we need are, are really probably much more intensive than people think sometimes, you know, it's often thought, well, yes, you can do three sessions of supportive psychotherapy and that'll do it. You know, we aim to have, we need much more in the way of, of wraparound services. So I'd want to look at the kinds they talk in this proposal of putting money into community mental health centers. I think the money really needs to be aimed at people who have difficulty accessing treatment. And when, uh, when you talk about wraparound services, what are you thinking about specifically? Well, I'm thinking about people the, the, there's a concept called case management, where very often people who are not licensed providers, they're not psychologists or therapists, but they're skilled at, you know, at making connections with people, uh, helping destigmatize the, the uh, uh, therapy process, uh, helping them overcome any barriers that keep them from accessing treatment. So if you're doing telehealth, the person may not have a phone that can really do telehealth. Uh, they don't have a car, so they can't get to the clinic. So they kind of deal with those very nuts and bolts issues. Uh, the uh, and, and even to the point of kind of making making some home visits when necessary, so that people don't just make an appointment and then no show for the appointment. Uh, the uh, th that's the kinds of uh, sort of intensive uh, services that really I think the the highly at risk population that we're talking about needs. Uh, Professor Temple, I'm curious in your research if you think about other wraparound services as well, things like secure housing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that we have the left hand has to know what the right hand is doing, and uh, and like Dr. Plitska said, this is a multifaceted problem that we have to, uh, in addition to having these mental health services and meeting people where they are, we have to uh, address safe and affordable housing and livable wages. We we just have to, and it's it, that's what I go back to when I talk about generational investments. Well, if you or someone you know is struggling, you can always call the suicide hotline number at 800-273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. One of our producers spoke to Stephen O'Connor. He's the director of the Suicide Prevention Research Program at the National Institute of Mental Health. Here's a clip from that conversation. We can't really predict who's going to die by suicide. You know, we can identify maybe those in the healthcare system that are at the greatest risk. But we can't predict when something is going to happen. 50% of suicides happen on their first attempt. And when firearms have a 90% fatality rate, you really don't get a second chance. If you wait to do firearm safety counseling, responsible firearm storage counseling with people when they're, until they're at the very highest level of risk, what's going to end up happening? You're just going to miss a lot of people. Professor Temple, I'd love to hear your response to that. Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And not so I, I will say, and I've, I know I've been probably more cynical about some of this than, than uh, other guests, but uh, this will have an impact on suicide prevention. So I do rally for that. Uh, but like uh, Dr. O'Connor said, is that 50% of folks, uh, you know, the first time is successful. And when, gun, when guns are used, it's almost always successful. And so one of the things I, I think that, and I don't, at the expense of hijacking this conversation a little bit, that we've sort of ignored is the true root of the problem. Problem, which is access to guns. And, and uh, I, I think no uh, suicide prevention or violence prevention measures uh, are going to be truly effective unless we also talk about access to guns. As we've said, there's a substantial amount of funding for mental health services in this proposal. Julie, what do we know about how much Congress is putting on the table? Uh, well, we're still waiting to see the actual final text of the legislation, so we don't know the exact numbers yet. Um, but, you know, we do know it's going to be a substantial amount. I think we may have glossed over a little bit one of the problems of finding the personnel to actually fill these positions that could be created by this funding. I mean, there really is a shortage of mental health personnel, both for young people and for adults. And, you know, we've en- we've enhanced insurance coverage for mental health services, but we have not really boosted boosted the supply of mental health providers. And it's, you know, perhaps as serious a problem in this as the easy access to guns. We're discussing the mental health measures in the bipartisan gun proposal. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, you can download our 1A Vox Pop app to leave us a message for future shows. Let's get back to our conversation on mental health and the bipartisan gun package. Julie, let's look at the politics for just a moment. When was the last time we saw a bipartisan gun proposal being considered in Congress? 
being considered, well, pretty much after every single mass shooting um, being passed. It's been pretty much 30 years since Congress uh, passed the assault weapons ban that, of course, then expired. So it's been quite a while since anything made it all the way through. Um, and this one has not yet. I mean, they're still hoping very much to get this done uh, uh, this week, if possible, because Congress is about to go out for a two-week break. Or Republican Texas Senator John Cornyn, Cornyn was booed at a GOP convention over gun legislation talks. We should confiscate guns from law-abiding Texans. Julie, what hurdles does this proposal face in the Senate? Well, obviously, time is is the biggest one. You know, they were hoping to have language uh, out yesterday. That didn't happen. They were hoping to have it out first thing this morning. That hasn't happened yet. Uh, then they have to basically, uh, if they're going to speed it through, they're going to have to get almost unanimous consent to, you know, one person could block it. They theoretically have the 10 Republicans that they need to break a filibuster, but that also takes a little while. And, you know, this is, as you've pointed out, the Republicans in particular are walking a tightrope here. You You've got people who are very don't very much don't want any kind of uh, new gun restrictions, and it's really difficult for Republicans to buck that. Even as we pointed out, there's not that much in this bill in the way of actual gun restrictions. Dr. Pliska, mental health services in schools already focus on early identification and intervention for kids at risk for violent behavior. It's something your program currently does, but what does it look like in practice? Uh, typically, if a child shows signs of, uh, of either suicidal ideation or making threats, the school counselor will is usually the first person who does an assessment. Um, then each school district will have slightly different policies in terms of uh, what the next step would be. Uh, the uh, Obviously, typically the parents will be informed. Uh, the school may say, until you have an evaluation by a mental health professional, you can't return to school. And uh, typically, the, the, if, if, there's, if, the, if the person's already in treatment, uh, they'll generally take them to that person. Uh, otherwise, the parent usually takes the child to an emergency room or to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation. They they be, be admitted. And at some point in that, uh, a, a, treatment, a long-term treatment plan needs to be established. And then a mental health professional will vouch for the person so that they can, uh, they can return to school. Now, another in in school districts have more robust internal mental health systems. They may have a designated mental health professional who works for the school district will do a large part of that. They'll evaluate them and say, yes, they're safe to return to school. They're in treatment or no, they need to they need to be hospitalized. So it is a bit it can be um, a bit of a patchwork system at present. And um, uh, the. and so hopefully any, I think there needs to be more study about filling the gaps in the mental health system in general. Mm. Uh, I think one larger problem, even separate from violence, but also addresses the issue of, the, of uh, mental illness among the homeless, is our lack of kind of intermediate uh, psychiatric facilities. So state hospitals have been closed and they've largely been replaced by freestanding private psychiatric hospitals that generally only keep people for three to 10 days, outpatient mental health clinics. 
And there's nothing really in between for the person who really needs to live in a more residential setting uh, because they need supervision, uh, you know, from, for, you know, in their, in their daily lives. So they take their medicine. They don't wander off. They don't abuse substances. Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Jeff in Texas. I just have a thought about all of this response that has to do with the mental health of the children. And we continually see these shooters in the age range of 18 to 21. I wonder if there isn't more that can be done towards the parenting of these children that might be at risk. And in particular, I hypothesize that the parents of the ones who become active shooters might have a less than stellar family life and there might be violence and other uh, causes that influence the child's state of mind. Professor Temple, briefly, what does the research say specifically about the link between gun violence and quality of family life? There's certainly going to be some linkage there, although we've seen everyday shooters, and when I say everyday shooters, I mean not mass shooters, and uh, with perfectly fine uh, family lives and parental monitoring, parental warmth, and uh, we've seen the reverse as well. And, uh, you know, know, so I I don't think that that we can blame that. And going back to what Dr. Pliska said, it's just a multifaceted problem that we need generational investments that does do things like parenting and, uh, and, but, you know, going back to our structural uh, determinants of, of health as well as some parents are working two jobs or three jobs. And so their ability to parent is lessened. So if we can, again, go back to livable wages, we would make an impact. Both of you, Professor Temple and Dr. Pliska, have said repeatedly that you're happy about more mental health funding. But I'm curious that in the absence of movement on actual gun regulation, are there other places where you'd like to see the government invest funds? We've talked a lot about wraparound services, um, even things like secure housing, a livable wage. But Dr. Pliska, what comes to mind for you? I think... um uh, there could be a lot bigger investment in, in maternal child health. Um, I think uh, helping uh, low-income pregnant women have a successful pregnancy and a lot of emphasis on the first year of life in terms of you know interacting with their infant, breastfeeding, um, uh, making sure that uh, the, the infant's adequately nourished and, and, and getting lots of uh, uh, stimulation uh, intellectually, uh, the uh, that would kind of get the brain development off on the right foot. Uh, the uh, um, and because I see a lot of these things, these problems really beginning very, very, very early in life. And if we could interrupt that cycle, uh, I I think at a, that would be a very cost-effective way of really avoiding a lot of uh, mental illnesses. Professor Temple, you've said clearly that you you think gun regulation is is what needs to happen alongside these mental health investments, which are sorely needed in the country. But are there other things you think we should be doing at this point? Yes, absolutely. And I'll scream this from every rooftop in in America. We need universal healthy relationship programming in schools. So we need to teach kids how to be in relationships. You know, we teach them how to dribble a basketball or English or writing or math or, uh, you know, music, but we don't teach them the, the most essential 
human skill is how to be in a relationship. And, and you know, we, we kids this surprisingly grow up to be just fine despite this, which is insane. I mean, we, you know, these kids have to learn from other kids, which is pretty bad, or they learn from the media, no offense, but is typically diff- bad. They learn from well-intentioned parents or bad parents, but it never really works. Like even well-intentioned parents, they might argue in front of their kids, but then make up elsewhere. So the kids don't see how to resolve conflicts in a nonviolent way. So the fact that, you know, most kids are laying through trial and error and do okay is impressive, but we could do better than that. We should be teaching these kids how to be in a relationship, how to apologize to someone, how to break up with someone, how to resolve conflicts, how to have conflicts, teach them that conflicts are a normal part of relationships. And, you know, I think that would go a long way and not just preventing things like uh, gun violence, but dating violence and bullying and risky sexual behavior and substance use. And so that would be my, uh, you know, give me a billion dollars and I do that. Julie, as we said, this proposal is still being negotiated. We don't know what that final package is going to look like, but what are you watching for over the next few weeks? Well, I'm watching to see, you know, whether the the Republicans actually stay strong in backing this package. Uh, you know, the, the Senate Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said that he was supportive of the framework, but when it actually comes into language, there's a chance. You know, we you already played the tape of uh, Senator Cornyn getting booed at the uh, Texas Republican Convention to to see if you know some of them decide that maybe this is not the greatest idea. So this this piece is this bill is not over the finish line yet, and I'll be waiting to see whether it actually gets there. And Professor Temple, just very, very briefly, if you could help us reframe the conversation about mental health and gun violence in just a few sentences, what would you say? How would you like to see that conversation start? I would like it to move from mental illness and mental health to mental well-being and uh, uh, emotional uh, well-being. So away from mental illness and towards behavioral approaches to make everyone's life happier and healthier. That's Jeff Temple. He's the founding director of the Center for Violence Prevention and a licensed psychologist at the University of Texas Medical Branch. Also with us today, Dr. Stephen Pliska. He's a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist at the University of Texas San Antonio. And Julie Rovner. She's chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of the podcast, What the Health? Professor Temple, Dr. Pliska, Julie, thanks for your time. Today's producers were Haley Blassingame and June Leffler. Our podcast is produced by Barb Anguiano. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.